Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 129, recorded on the 5th of August 2019. If you are not a subscriber yet, do subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. And if you are listening on iTunes, please do take a minute to leave us a review there. This will help others find the show and makes us a little happier. Today, we will talk about uh, Babylon Health and Saudi funding, about Rockstar Texas kerfuffle about e-scooters and climate risks, Cloudflare and 8chan, and much more. We have also prepared an interview with Connie Weber, the senior research analyst at the European Crowdfunding Network. I am your host, Andrew Degler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, before we start, do you still hate Twitter's redesign? No, because <laughs> I found an How amazing come? Chrome web extension, browser extension that makes everything back to normal. And I'm very happy. It means I have to use Chrome, but for the time being, I can use Twitter now. Wow, that didn't last long. I was kind of expecting that I would ask you every week for another couple of months and you will just keep telling me that you hate it still. And now just a week passes and you find a solution. Yes. That's not fair. But I still hate it. Uh, the redesign, I wish I didn't have to use this extension. If anyone is interested in the extension, it's called Good Twitter. I don't know <laughs> if it's a particularly safe extension to download, but for in the meantime, it's allowing me to get back online. So I appreciate that very much. This is actually something that really bothers me about a lot of extensions, just because I have in most cases, no particular clue who writes them and uh, what information uh, they gather. And the permission system in Chrome is not exactly fine-grained. It's just basically you give the extension the right to read and access all your information. And actually, it's not different uh, on uh, Firefox uh, or anything else. Actually, on the other browsers, you just don't have any permission system at all. So on on uh, Chrome, it's, uh, it's better than anywhere else, but but it's still, I would say, not enough. Yeah, and I think that's a, that's certainly a fair critique, but it is working for me now, and I really appreciate that. So thanks for following up there. Yeah, this is great. But um, it's it's Monday here, and there were some a few really cool stories over the weekend that I just wanted to kind of share before we get into it. Well, the first thing was Frankie Zabata, who's a French inventor. He successfully flown a hoverboard across the English Channel. He did that over the weekend, and it only took him 20 minutes and included a refueling stop halfway. The pictures of this are awesome. The video is so cool to see. And it really is like one of those things that makes you excited about some of these new innovations um, in, in technology. And it's something that he thinks hoverboards will be viable in the future, but currently they cost about 250,000 euros. Also this weekend, eSports, another win for Europe where Mohamed Harkus from Germany won the 2019 FIFA E-World Cup and he took home a $250,000 prize. So that's pretty exciting as well. Ah, this is pretty uplifting especially uh, on the contrast of what we're going to talk uh, later today in uh, in our segments. Uh, do you actually play FIFA yourself, Natalie? I don't, 
but um, I really am appreciative of the esports uh, market that's growing. I think it's a it's a positive place in a lot of respects, and it's something that's improving in a lot of ways. And Europe, I, there's a lot of success here. Two uh, individuals at the Fortnite Championships um, from the UK um, came in second and third, respectively, in the Paris competition two weeks ago. They took home over two million pounds prize money. So I think it's 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 not not a bad thing that's developing here. Yeah, it's certainly coming of age. Uh, do you also watch any esports like on YouTube or Twitch? No, I don't. I don't watch it, but I'm fascinated by the industry and kind of the communities that are growing around it. Um, yep. It's it's very interesting to follow some of the quote unquote stars of the esports world. Um, I think is very neat, but I I'm not one for for watching them. The the games that really kind of become very prominent in esports aren't really some of my favorites. So maybe there'll be one one of these days. So maybe when they start playing Red Dead Redemption uh, as an esports, <laughs> you, you yeah, it will change I'm, something I'm for not you. a very um, collaborative gamer, so that that's kind of the one challenge there for me in in the esports. I'm not, I'm not too competitive, so I would probably make a very poor esports player. Right. Okay. So we're going to talk about uh, uh, video games a little bit later, and uh, now we can move on to the stories and interviews of uh, the week. And I will start with the, the biggest funding round uh, that we saw last week, and that is the UK-based health tech startup called Babylon Health, which raised 550 million US dollars at a valuation of more than two billion US dollars. And the company itself uh, claims that this is the largest ever fundraise for a digital health delivery startup in Europe or the US. And uh, before the funding was announced officially, actually, there had been a few leaks in the media speculating that uh, Babylon was about to raise anywhere between 100 and 500 million US dollars. So now we uh, know the amount. And the next question is obviously, what does Babylon Health do? And why is it actually worth all this money. So uh, it's pretty simple. The startup is using artificial intelligence and uh, acquired medical expertise to deliver different uh, health services to patients, especially in situations when it is not exactly necessary to talk to a human doctor. So I'm uh, speaking about situations uh, uh, like really minor uh, sort of uh, illnesses or issues that uh, uh, can uh, be figured out by the artificial intelligence. For that, uh, Babylon has a symptom checker, uh, which is uh, sort of a chatbot uh, that would uh, ask you questions about uh, how you feel and uh, what you feel and so on. Then there is a full uh, uh, service that's called a health check, and that is more like a general assessment of uh, your uh, uh, health and uh, what you can expect in the future and so on and so forth. And uh, at the end, there is this uh, telemedicine uh, solution that connects users to to actual specialists. Now, Babylon is also well known for having partnered with the UK's National Health Service, NHS, which uses it to diagnose minor health issues remotely and free up the time of the doctors. Babylon says that it delivers 4,000 clinical consultations every day, which equals to one patient interaction every 10 seconds. 
So all in all, uh, Babylon Health sounds like a really great company, and I am very happy that they have raised money. And by the way, last time that they raised funding before, it was three years ago, and that round was much, much more modest at uh, 60 million US dollars. So they have certainly covered a lot of ground over these three years. The thing that concerns me here, though, is uh, where the money comes from. And the investor pool for this round includes an unnamed uh, large US-based health insurer. Uh, then there is a the Ergo Fund by Munich Re, and then there are returning investors, uh, Kinevik and uh, Vostok New Ventures. And the concerning part, there is also uh, Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund, uh, also known as PIF. And PIF is also an anchor investor in SoftBank's Vision Fund and uh, many US companies, including uh, Tesla and Uber. According to Business Insider, uh, the funding raised by Babylon is actually the first direct investment of uh, PIF into a European startup which is a, a pretty interesting thing. And it kind of looks like not too many people in Europe care about this, but uh, PIF is the fund that's shared by the exact same person who reportedly ordered the assassination of the journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi in October 2018 at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Also, in February uh, this year, uh, PIF uh, started paying 120,000 US dollars a month to a communication agency in the US to, quote, enhance enhance the reputation and image, quote, ends of the fund, and underscore its, quote, business-only purpose and focus, the quote ends. So to me, this kind of sounds like the definition of uh, toxic money, but apparently many startups and investors across Europe and the US would kind of uh, disagree. I don't know. Uh, Natalie, what do you think? Uh, what do you think it manifests that uh, for the first time PIF invested directly into, into a startup here? Yeah, so I would kind of underline that point made by Business Insider. And I agree that is the first example of PIF investing directly in a European company. Last year, there were several investments made by PIF through the Vision Fund. And at the time, we were wondering why there was really kind of no conversation around accepting this funding and this was also the time when the killing of Jamal Khashoggi was very fresh. And uh, it was something that we had a podcast about kind of questioning, wondering about it. I don't think this is a particularly positive move for European startups. And I'm also kind of wondering why we haven't heard kind of any conversation about is this ethical or is this something that we should do? And you would think that you would have seen something, but maybe we'll see that in the next coming days. This was only announced um, just about uh, on Friday. So I wonder if we'll see something, but yeah, it it's not doesn't sit quite so well with me, especially for a health and wellness company. Yeah, uh, to be entirely honest, I my bet would be that we will not see a lot of uh, conversation. And, and it's also interesting to note here that Babylon Health works very closely with um, the NHS here in the UK, and they have a number of contracts with them. They work very closely with one another. So essentially, in some ways, they are receiving public funding for some of their activities. So you would think maybe if there is any conversation around that, that maybe it would come from UK taxpayers or different sorts of um, watchdog groups here in the UK. So you might hear something around that. But yeah, I agree with you. I don't I don't necessarily think that we will see anything. Right. Okay, let's move to your uh, segment. That's not much more uplifting, but at least very different. 
Yeah, and and that's right. And here is a story from where my local area here. And last week, a story came out that Rockstar North, which is an Edinburgh-based game studio, was called out for allegedly not paying any corporation tax for the last 10 years. At the same time, as they were claiming back over 42 million pounds in tax relief. And just in case Rockstar doesn't ring a bell for you, they are the company behind Grand Theft Auto V, which is considered by some to be the most commercially successful product in the history of entertainment industry. The game has earned revenues estimated over $6 billion since its release in 2013. And last year, the company released Red Dead Redemption 2, a game set in the Wild West, which sold over 15 million copies in just eight days. And we've talked about Red Dead Redemption 2 on the podcast before. I own the game as well as many of uh, Broxer's other titles. And in full disclosure, I enjoy their games and I've been playing them for almost two decades. I'll date myself here and there. Um, But the allegations on tax avoidance were made by an investigative think tank called Tax Watch UK. The investigation suggests that Rockstar North's parent company was able to keep profits from coming into the UK, which meant the company was able to reduce its tax burden to a nearly negligible amount. At the same time, they were able to point to their domestic and European-based development to take advantage of the UK video games tax relief to the tune of £42 million, a tax relief scheme that many suggest was intended for small development companies, not multi multinational conglomerates like Rockstar. But maybe these allegations against the firm are unsurprising for a company that emblazoned this entire city with their marketing slogan, quote, outlaws for life, end quote, upon release of Red Dead Redemption 2 last year, as well as consumer groups that have continually critiqued the Grand Theft Auto V franchise for celebrating what they consider to be criminality. I know there is a good outlaw pun in here, but um, I'll leave that for you to make that jump. So while some might find the suggestion that the company received considerable tax relief at the same time as paying no tax quite distasteful, there's no indication that Rockstar or the parent company, Take-Two Entertainment, has done anything illegal. Rather, it's more a question of having good accountants and lawyers. But it clearly seems that they were able to take advantage of a policy in a way that some might think was not intended. What it does suggest is that there might be grounds for the commission under its auspices of protecting competition to look into this case a little bit closer. And it's not the first time. The UK video games tax relief policy has previously been investigated by the European Commission in an investigation over competition policy. In 2014, the commission approved the tax relief plan, justifying the legal policy which suggested that just 25% of UK-produced games would be eligible for aid. The policy is only designed to cover outputs that are culturally British or European, which some critics allege is quite a stretch when applied to Rockstar's case, especially considering that despite being considered culturally British by the tax authorities, both of the company's two major exports are both strongly set in the United States. But you can certainly argue what culturally British is considered to be, and I've had a close read of what the of the cultural test, and it depends on earning 16 out of 31 points, which can be drawn from the content 
or from where the gamer is produced. There are other European countries that offer tax relief for domestically produced video games as well. France has had such a policy since 2006, and Finland, Germany, the Netherlands, and Denmark also have their own tax relief for game development. So these things aren't that controversial. But there is also another aspect that suggests that the UK government should look closer at this situation. Under the UK's own laws, games produced for gambling or advertising purposes are not eligible to receive relief under the scheme. Just in the past few days, Rockstar has since introduced a significant casino element to Grand Theft Auto V by opening something called the Diamond Casino that they've also included gambling elements into Red Dead Redemption Online. Depending on how you read it, these aspects of the game could challenge their ability for the company to take advantage of this tax relief in the future. So far, since the investigation dropped, there's been no comment from Rockstar Games. And to be honest, I didn't expect one either. The company is pretty secretive, and in Edinburgh, they are very low-key, despite having a large, beautiful office right next to the Scottish Parliament. And despite being a steward of several, quote, culturally British products, end quote, you wouldn't necessarily know that they were headquartered in Edinburgh at all. They don't have a presence at any of the big or small tech events here. But I appreciate the efforts of Tax Watch UK to bring this to light. And I think in many respects, it's up to the regulator to intervene and see if this behavior is appropriate. So I suppose we will need to watch the space and see what happens. This is really interesting. And I mean, it, it's not really surprising to me at all that uh, a big uh, game dev studio is not paying taxes or doing tax optimization. Uh, to be entirely honest, the most surprising part for me is the uh, last minute of what you were uh, saying about the ecosystem. I would certainly expect a major company like this to be in the very middle of the ecosystem and being present uh, around. I mean, they would totally need to... Uh, care of their HR brand at the very least, right? Because they need developers, they need people to work for them. How come they uh, they aren't that visible then? You know, I'm not sure. And when I first came to Edinburgh over 10 years ago, they used to be in a really small office, kind of um, kind of a little bit off the, the tourist track. And I have a picture of myself actually standing in front of the sign. It was so kind of hidden away. Um, and they've really kind of kept a very low profile ever since then. And you don't really see them out and about, and they're not participating in events that often. Um, you never see them sponsoring anything. And I've always kind of wondered why that is. But their reputation is so strong, and the games are so popular. Um, it's the Grand Theft Auto V is is the kind of most popular gaming franchise of all time. Um, I don't think the HR concerns really have are too much of a barrier. I think you always see people excited to to work for them, and it it really would be, I think, for for many game developers, um, really a, a nice feather to have in your cap. They say that you worked at Rockstar. Yeah, that's true. And uh, also, I have not played many of uh, their games not uh, in the last 10 years at least but for, from what I saw and from what I remember I would not quite call them very culturally British. No and that's something that has been kind of one of the very kind of controversial aspects about that's come out especially because they thought only a very small selection of game studios would be available to take advantage of this tax credit. It's a very interesting way how you calculate what is considered 
quote unquote culturally British. And there's some, you can get some points for the location, the setting, the protagonist being British or European, but some other criteria can, can give you points for kind of where you develop the product, where um, kind of the head designer, the score, um, people that, that wrote the dialogue, where they came from. So I think that's how they did a calculation um, because all of those setting um, questions it definitely wouldn't have applied. Yeah. Also, another important question here that I just uh, thought about, I guess uh, the right uh, way to look at it would be like this. Uh, do you know if this uh, tax uh, relief uh, thing, does it have sort sort of a cap? In terms of like the fact that Rockstar has claimed these forty-two million pounds, did it basically mean that some other smaller studios were not able to claim it? So I can't tell you that for sure, but what I do know is that the payouts for this specific tax credit have been increasing significantly over time since it was introduced. So I'm not sure if there is a, a cutoff anywhere. But the if you look at the amount that Rockstar was able to to get back versus the amount of total spending on this tax credit, they are taking really the lion's share of it. Yeah, yeah, that is true. I mean, that's just one more example of the fact that the taxation system is not always adequate across Europe uh, when dealing with uh, multinational uh, tech companies that uh, are not like what uh, the governments uh, are used to seeing. Over the over the past uh, few decades, and I do expect something to uh, change in this uh, respect, and I do hope that uh, something will change, and we will end up with something fairer, at least uh, than uh, than what we have right now. Now, speaking of money, let us talk about uh, crowdfunding, and it's not going to be us. It's actually going to be my interviewee from the uh, Startup Extreme Festival in Vos in June. I talked to Connie Weber, uh, the senior research analyst at the European Crowdfunding Network, about uh, the landscape of uh, this uh, type of funding in Europe and uh, what we can expect in the future. Let's listen to this one together, and we will be back in a few minutes with the podcast uh, storybook uh, recommendations. Hello, uh, this is Andrew Degler reporting today for Tech.eu from Startup Extreme in Vos, Norway. And uh, today I'm catching up uh, with uh, Connie Weber, who does a lot of uh, research and uh, help to investors uh, with uh, crowdfunding. Hey, uh, Connie, great to meet you. And thanks a lot for taking the time to talk. Hi, nice to meet you. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, once again, what is exactly your official title? I think I'm senior research analyst, but uh, I think it's the titles are not so important. So my mission is more to work for the European crowdfunding network and to promote the crowdfunding industry in Europe. Right. So what's uh, what's European crowdfunding network then? So the European Crowdfunding Network is an industry association aiming at uh, promoting uh, the crowdfunding industry in Europe and creating a dialogue between policymakers and the crowdfunding industry who are the platforms and other uh, ecosystem uh, stakeholders. Right. And how big is it at the moment? 
We have around uh, 70 to 80 members, most of them crowdfunding platforms. We have a newly created board uh, where we have Cedars and Funding Circle and Crowdcube in the board. So we have really the biggest crowdfunding platforms in, in Europe as our members. And we are member-based. So uh, in terms of stuff, we are quite small. So we vary between five and 10 people, depending mm. on the projects we have. And uh, yes, but the most important are our members. Are there any major crowdfunding platforms that are not part of the association? Sure, there are many who are not part and who play in their countries an individual role, but um, it's not so important for us to have uh, everyone there. It's more important for us to create impact and those who are willing to create impact in Europe and towards the European policymakers, they are our members. So today at uh, Startup Extreme, uh, your workshop was about mostly equity crowdfunding and uh, lending crowdfunding. So is that what you also focus on uh, in your own uh, research and daily work? Uh, yes. In principle, it's about crowd investing uh, because there you can leverage more higher amounts. And uh, so the, the basic idea of crowdfunding is to, to enable uh, access to finance for SMEs. And therefore, the investing models, lending and equity-based are quite interesting, especially for, for SMEs uh, wanting to grow or scale up. But of course, and I think it's uh, very nice, also the, the reward-based crowdfunding uh, there, especially in the cultural sector, you have huge impact and you can create uh, big things. And it's also for, for developing economies, uh, probably more the reward-based uh, crowdfunding models are interesting. So, and the name of your uh, workshop was uh, how to be a uh, professional uh, crowdfunding investor. So, define a professional crowdfunding investor for me. <laughs> well, the workshop was uh, sponsored by the Easil project, which is a European Union financed project on capacity building for early stage investors. So, the aim is to motivate more people to become business angel investors and crowdfunding investors. And this mm -hmm. is why we did the workshop on becoming a professional crowdfunding investor. Well, the word professional is probably not that important. I think it's important to, to explain to people that uh, with crowdfunding, you, you can use small amounts and uh, by diversifying your portfolio across different platforms, different sectors and different uh, company growth stages, the risk is not that high because of course, uh, crowdfunding is a high risk uh, investment, but you can uh, minimize the risk and by, by diversifying your portfolio and then it's quite nice because you can directly fund uh, companies who you like uh, or you think that are promising okay because for me like i had a uh, an understanding which most probably is wrong uh, that uh, uh, crowdfunding investment is like the very sort of entry level of uh, investment and then people who start with that would normally move on towards becoming angel investors and uh, stop doing crowdfunding altogether that's uh, that's wrong is it I think it's not that wrong. I think crowdfunding is a perfect tool if you want to start becoming an investor. So uh, if you want to become an investor, I think you need money and probably you do not have the money yet. Uh, or So this is why crowdfunding can be interesting because you right. can already invest with uh, small amounts and you can learn to invest uh, with these small amounts. So you can play a little bit around while angel investment or venture capital investment there, you, you need higher investment. 
investments and uh, also higher involvement. So I think crowdfunding is a nice uh, tool for starting investing. But very interesting is to complement all these uh, kinds of funding. So uh, to combine crowdfunding with business angel investment uh, to get uh, VCs to invest in crowdfunding campaigns or to take follow-on funding of crowdfunding campaigns and also to involve the traditional financing sector to provide, for example, a loan for SME, which uh, recently has uh, finalized a successful crowdfunding campaign. So you basically see uh, equity crowdfunding as a supplement to different uh, other kinds of uh, investment. Yes, I think uh, both lending and equity crowdfunding can be really seen as a supplement complementary. And uh, for SMEs, it's a great chance to yeah, look for different channels and to, to combine the sources. And what's your general take then on the landscape of uh, uh, crowdfunding investment in Europe? Well, it's funny because I started from the innovation management consulting and there uh, we figured out that the problem is not that the companies do not have the ideas, the companies do not have the money. So we created a crowdfunding platform in Austria because at this time after the banking crisis, the first crowdfunding platforms came up. And so I was involved really from, from the early beginnings uh, of, of crowdfunding and I observed in the last uh, 10 years the growth of the industry and uh, so uh, currently we are at a point where uh, the exponential growth has a little bit of stopped so i think we can observe a consolidation in the market and uh, you mean platforms now even platforms so there are many platforms who close down uh, so after the first hype, uh, many platforms uh, closed down now, but they are others who really established as serious and uh, well-organized players. We have now the first platforms uh, who are profitable, especially in the UK, the big platforms, they, they managed to, to get a profitable business model. And I think the crowdfunding industry is uh, maturating and will continue growing. Right. Who are... Uh, crowdfunding investors like uh, is there do you have like a portrait of an average crowdfunding investor i think this is the nice uh, thing of crowdfunding that there there is not the typical crowdfunding investor so uh, of course everything started with the retail investors so small people uh, funding festivals funding uh, music projects or, or tv productions and then it got more and more professional uh, with different countries coming up with right regulations um the investments got higher because with the regulation, it was possible to make higher investments. With crowdfunding becoming a more mature industry, also business angels and uh, institutional uh, investors stepped in. Mm -hmm. Recently, we can observe that more and more banks uh, make collaborations with uh, crowdfunding platforms. So I think there is not the typical investor because it depends always on on the project and on the uh, funding amount uh, who is needed and uh, sometimes it's backed by a public authority or by an institutional investor or by a business angel so it's quite a broad picture okay uh, let's move then to the startup side of things so generally it seems like crowdfunding is a great uh, tool for startups to raise money is there any type of startups for which it would be not advisable to go for uh, for crowdfunding? 
Um, I think there are some startups for uh, who it's more challenging to to run a successful crowdfunding campaign, but I wouldn't say that it's that there aren't that there are startups where it's not possible. So the challenge is to to convince the crowd in the two minutes video you have or in the half page uh, text you have that they should invest in your project. And to do this, you need a great story that ideally creates emotions. So if you are not able to explain uh, the added value of your product, service, project, whatever, uh, in, in two minutes and to, to touch the people emotionally, then it's difficult. But I wouldn't say that it's impossible. Probably you just need to figure out how to better communicate it. So uh, we also did research uh, on for the European Commission on um, crowdfunding for research and technology. So especially research projects have the problems that uh, they are so complex and so complicated where it's really challenging to, to explain this uh, for a crowdfunding campaign. But it's just a matter of communication. So you work a lot with uh, crowd investing in uh, Europe. But how is uh, Europe uh, different uh, from uh, elsewhere in the world? Are there any particularities that we have here uh, that's different from anywhere else? Yes, that we have a really, really fragmented market. So we have the European Union, we have the member states, but each of the 28 countries has its own uh, national regulation. Uh, and this is really why it's difficult in Europe to, to make crowdfunding as successful as, uh, for example, in, in the US. UK is quite advanced. They have a quite progressive um, regulation. So this is why there uh, the market is, is very big. Uh, but uh, it also shows that in Europe, there's still much potential. So Europe is working on a regulation for harmonization of the crowdfunding industry in Europe. And um, it's still dis under discussion, but uh, we are quite confident that it will soon be available. Soon as in this year? I'm not able to, to tell exact numbers. So currently the, the European Commission and the Parliament are changing and it's up to different entities to, to further proceed on this uh, ECSP regulation. But uh, we are quite confident that in the next uh, probably one or two years uh, we will have it. So uh, we have the impression that there are many people pushing this forward. So we also worked a lot uh on lobbying for this uh, crowdfunding regulation. And um, yeah, we hope that uh, it progresses as soon as possible. Great. Thank you so much, Connie. This is it for my questions. Uh, good luck with your uh, traveling uh, back home today and uh, good luck with everything you're doing. Thank you so much. Hello, welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu, episode number 129. Uh, we just listened to a great interview with uh, Connie Weber, the senior research analyst at the European Crowdfunding Network. And now it is time to get to the recommendation part. And uh, for me, it's uh, the great uh, thing. Uh, it's uh, I'm going to get a dose of uh, e-scooters talk. I haven't talked about them for I think about two weeks, so I really, I really need to, really need to vent a little bit. So, okay. 
let's uh, let's bring the topic back and my today's recommendation it is a research letter and uh, i didn't actually know that this format existed so research letter is sort of a research paper but it's shorter and more focused uh, so it's a research letter that's published by iop science and also it is a story on mit technology review that uh, sums up the findings of the study itself now the story is called sorry scooters are not so climate friendly after all and we have already discussed it uh, uh, discussed this topic uh, here on the podcast before, but it's just yet another argument in the discussion about uh, whether shared e-scooters are the future of urban mobility. And uh, long story short, uh, the story concludes that uh, the quote begins: "Roughly two thirds of the time, scooter rides generate more greenhouse gas emissions than the alternative, and those increased emissions were greater than the gains from the car rides not taken." The quote ends. So this study was conducted in the US, but I don't think that uh, things are that different uh, in Europe. Uh, check out the full piece and the paper itself to see all the numbers and uh, the methodology. And uh, let us know uh, Let us know what you think. Natalie, what's your take on this? Yeah, so for us kind of skeptical people, it's not that surprising to me. But I'm really glad that there is some concrete and methodologically rigorous research being done on this topic, because it's been very convenient to kind of point to e-scooters, electric mobility as, you know, this is a green solution and this is a sustainable solution. And while I think there is so much promise for e-scooters, we really need to look at this in a holistic way. And so I really appreciate you sharing this story this week. Now, what was it that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so this is taking a, a little bit different turn here. And um, what's unfortunately becoming increasingly unsurprising um, for me, it's just been impossible to miss that there were several more mass shootings in the U.S. over the weekend. So on Friday, Saturday and Sunday of last week, and this is all very incredibly sad to see such hate and pain and divisions in society. And there are a number of discussions about what role technology plays in this, in this violence. And I always remember the Berlin tech community coming together after the Trump elections and after attacks on migrants in Germany and really the community trying to make sense of what can be done and what can people in tech can they be part of the solution? And I really treasure those memories. But one of the critiques that's often made kind of in the wake of these sorts of incidents is for those that build and support technology, are they doing enough or what more can we do here? Especially when those technologies are used by the perpetrators of violence to disseminate hatred. So this week, I wanted to recommend a post by Matthew Prince, who is the founder and CEO of Cloudflare, which is a web infrastructure and security company. So they had to make a, a tough decision, and they announced that they are terminating service for 8chan, which is a forum website that one of the gunmen from the attacks over the weekend used. And why I'm flagging the post this week is that I want to recognize how this is one internet and technology company that's really taking responsibility for what happens on the web that they help to facilitate. And as an infrastructure and security company, they don't run the platforms that are on there. And it would be very easy for them to kind of sit back and continue business as usual. They have thousands and thousands of sites on that use their technology because they exist in the background. 
but they decided that the stakes were just too great. And I really appreciate that. And I wanted to flag this post because Prince specifically mentions Europe, arguing that European governments are taking the lead with how to manage some of this content online. And you can take it from me that your experience on the internet is very different based on if you're browsing the web in the US or if you're in Europe. So I think that's something that is very worth recognizing. And well, the final reason why I'm recommending this post this week is that it's a great example of a founder taking responsibility, taking a stand for something they believe in and making what can be a pretty tough decision as an executive. And they're really doing this with real elegance. And I think that's worth recognizing. And I think for those founders that might be listening, it's something you can learn from. And in the post, he links to a number of organizations that are working to help keep hate off the internet. And they're very much worth supporting. So I would encourage you to go check those out and have a look at this post um, and think about what thoughts and um, themes that it brings out. And I think it it does a very good job of making something that is a very tough choice, um, explaining it very well. Thanks for this. Natalie, I actually have this uh, have this post uh, uh, open in my browser. I opened it uh, way before we started recording, but then I had to had to write my own segment, so I couldn't read it. I will do it after we finish. And I do agree that uh, Cloudflare did the right thing, and it is a commendable thing. But I'm also a little bit more skeptical because, I mean. This company has been providing this service uh, for this uh, particular uh, website for a while, and uh, it took quite a while to do the right thing. And I'm also wondering what um, part in this has been played by the fact that it has just been reported that Cloudflare plans an IPO uh, in September. And I think there were certain things that catalyzed uh, this uh, particular decision that have less to do with just the will to do the right thing. At the same time, still, as I said, uh, it's certainly the right thing and certainly uh, worth uh, worth a praise. Yeah, and I think that's a very uh, important point. And of course, there is always usually uh, multiple rationales behind each sort of messaging that executives are using. And there was an interesting point that was brought up over the weekend was, well, all of these people also use Facebook. Why why hasn't Facebook come forward and said something? Or Twitter um, very publicly took down one of the shooter's accounts, but didn't mention why or how it was a breach of service or anything like that. So there wasn't a lot of transparency around that. Um, And I think in a situation where these digital technologies and a new cycle that moves as fast as, as it does, by being very clear and kind of outlining your point and your rationale for doing things, um, even if the motives are not purely altruistic, maybe they are messaging um, you're doing it for messaging, maybe you're doing it, but it puts it, it puts them on the stand for in the future that if something else were to happen, they are publicly have recognized themselves as some as an organization, as an entity that is going to take a stand on that. And I think that's an important message um, when you see so many other companies that kind of give those things a pass. 
I agree. What I w- what I would like to see now is maybe something more organized and more structured than just one company taking this uh, stand and then the other and having this sort of patchwork of uh, measures uh, being taken. At the same time, th- these are the first steps, and uh, I am I-, I am still hopeful that uh, we will see something better. Now, this is it. This is time uh, for us to wrap it up. Uh, Thanks a lot for listening. Hope you enjoyed uh, uh, our podcast today. If you did, do tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That's sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks for having me, Andre. Great to be here. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.